day, Sujan, is just-in-time delivery. <laughs> so, um, hi, everybody. Uh, it's Ken Rimple from Chariot Solutions. I'm here with Sujan Kapadia. Hey, folks. And uh, we're here for the Tech Chat Tuesday for the week. Um, and I'm starting on time, which means 12.01 p.m. <laughs> Eastern time. Uh, let me just share my screen here and then turn off notifications because I know I'll get them. Uh, and so we have a couple of cool things to talk about this week. Um, specifically, we're going to get into this a little bit later. We're going to talk about the Apple event and what it means. Uh, but we'll start off with some developer news that's not related to that first. Uh, and But before we even do that, I uh, want to let everyone know that next week is our big Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conference. Um, it's May 4th to 6th, 2021. There are still tickets available because it's online. Pile in. Uh, you know, you'll certainly be able to get a lot out of the conference. Sujan and I are going to be doing a one-hour um, kind of pregame show from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, kind of talking about some of the things that are coming up, things on the second two days that we liked, that we, you know, enjoyed. We might get a speaker or two to join us, and we can certainly, uh, we're going to be using Slack for the event, so we're going to be looking at some of the messages there and highlighting things that people want to bring up. So it should be fun uh, and should be interesting, hopefully, and we'll kind of get you excited about some of the talks that are coming up uh, if you're taking the show and, and, and uh, going to ETE. And that will all be, uh, if you like and subscribe to this video, that will all be notified to you uh, on YouTube so you'll get a notice that the live stream is starting so you can watch that as well. You can also always go to our YouTube channel, which is uh, youtube.com slash chariot solutions. Uh, after ETE, a couple weeks later, even if you're not uh, an ETE person, I'm not sure what the date will be if you're not ETE, but for ETE people um, who attend, you can see all the videos right away uh, once we have them up, up online. But youtube.com slash chariot solutions, and you'll notice that there's a whole lot of stuff in here, including all of our Tech Chat Tuesdays. They're archived. Um, we're already up to 38 of these. Wow. Um, and then we've got hundreds of other videos online, including all of my older podcasts, uh, the uh, the uh, Tech Cast and Business of Tech and all these other ones that we do, all of the ETE shows that we have. So if you go to playlists, every ETE that we've done uh, that we have videos for, we have that. We have a super playlist of all the videos we have collected. We have a, a playlist of all the women for uh, Women's Month. Uh, we have all of our women speakers, female speakers. We have a whole bunch of other shows as well. So I encourage you to take a look at that. But if you haven't registered for Philly ETE yet, I'm imploring you, it's cheap. 89 bucks. There's a buy three, get one free. We have a fantastic show for you coming up. Uh, we have Alan Kay, a pioneer computing scientist. He built the first graphical user interface Um was at the beginning of object-oriented programming, amazing Turing Award winner, uh, and he's going to be our first keynote. Uh, we then have um, Amber Case. Um, so she's a futurist uh, in computing. Uh, and then what's our third keynote? I'm so sorry, my brain is going on me. Uh, uh, Jessica Care? No, you may have just said that. Hold on. No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, it's um. I'm sorry. See, this is what happens when you do this random. Kent Beck and Jessica Kerr, I believe, are having their conversation. So that is the third one. Um, and Kent Beck, basically founder of Extreme Programming. So, and you know, of course, Jessica is a fantastic interviewer. So that's going to be great as well. Um, what do you think, Sujan? What are some of the ones you want to highlight here? Uh, I definitely you you touched on a few of them. You know, Kent Beck, Alan yep. Kay, um, Brian Getz, Daniel Spiewak, uh, Amber Case our very own Keith Gregory, um, interested in listening to David Nolan and Michael 
Becker and Nita Ruff as well. So, I mean, I guess I'm just like now listening a lot of the talks that are going on, but they're going to be so interesting. And they're, the topics are um, varied uh, widely across different, uh, basically, languages, platforms, uh, domains. So you're going to get a lot of different information. Um, it's not just like a one thing like around Java or around Scala or around Go or Python. So I think there's something for everyone. I think that's something that ET's always been, and that's why I've enjoyed it, is because there's so many different topics, and you leave knowing, learning a lot more than when you went in, and mm -hmm. you learn leave with a list of things to go like learn or hack on or or you know further delve into. So that's why I find conferences really uh, entertaining and educational, and we have something like that in Philadelphia which we really didn't before ET. So it's amazing. And a lot of people kind of rely on ET being around every year. It's just part of the Philadelphia tech landscape. Yeah, totally. And you can see we have three tracks uh, or three rooms going on at the same time, virtual rooms. We'll have Slack open for each of the rooms so people can comment. Last year, that was a big deal. That really helped a lot of people kind of feel like a community. You know, you lose that hallway conference. Uh, we brought it back with Slack. So we have some stuff that we can do there. And we had a lot of good feedback last year. Um, and you can see we got a lot of variety. So, for example, at the 130 slot, we've got some organizational stuff with Nithya Ruff. We've got Golang uh, talking about Go interfaces from Ricardo uh, Girardi. And then we have Journey to the Center of the JVM with Daniel Spiewak, an excellent deep engineering talk. So it's all over. I like the name of that. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so we got, you know, basically three or four sessions. I forget. I think it's three per day. Um, with different tracks uh, and the keynote, and we have our pregame show. So it's going to be great. I, I think you'll get a lot out of it. Um, I can't talk enough about it. I've been helping organize it since basically I've gotten here. So I, I, I love ETE. All right, enough about selling our stuff, but uh, phillyemergingtech.com or phillyete.com both work. So let's get into our first article. So um, Sujan, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit and have you go first. But uh, we have Jupyter Notebooks in the terminal. Let's talk about that. So um, for folks that are not familiar with Jupyter, it's essentially a interactive uh, runtime environment for Python and the ability to basically uh, get a REPL in markdown format. So you can uh, type in Python statements, execute them, see the results, comment and annotate them, save the results into a notebook format, plot, do charts, do graphs, uh, do pretty much most of the things you can do with Python. You know, you can install packages, you can import packages, et cetera, and then uh, basically run Python code. The idea being that doing it in Markdown allows you to build an interactive notebook that can be shared with other engineers, scientists, developers, um, whatnot. You can share your uh, results. So it's really popular in data science and data engineering. Um, and folks will kind of uh, run labs or experiments and then share their results with other scientists. Uh, it's also now become popular way of uh, doing instructional training material because you can have a notebook um, where the teacher has the exercises and solutions and they can share a version of the notebook without solutions with their students and folks can do things interactively and then reveal the solution and tweak it, edit it. So it's really nice for that too. Um, some folks behind that that work on it have built a, or starting to build a command line terminal version of this, which is quite interesting called NVTerm and you're essentially doing what you do with Markdown, but you're doing it on the command line. And then you can save it off to a, a Python notebook format and you could load it back up in normal Jupyter or you could load it here. And uh, you know, 
there's those folks that never like leave, leaving the command line, right? They have their whole life in the command line. Their <laughs> project management, their task management, their weather, their stocks, their scheduling, their everything. So this is yet another thing that you can just um, fire up right in the command line and start coding right away. So if you are interested in um, tight feedback loops, um, interactive coding, REPL-based coding, um, I would highly recommend looking at this. Um, you're looking at Jupyter for sure, because you can do a lot more with the Markdown online version of Jupyter, which you can run in the cloud or locally. But then this is, I think, pretty cool for like hacking or trying out a few things and getting nice uh, colorized results that you can then save off somewhere. Um, it uses IPython underneath. Uh, interestingly, you can actually run IPython, which is what they call kernel, the kernel that Jupyter uses. You can run IPython as your shell for Python when you fire up Python, the command line. So you get a much better REPL that has syntax highlighting and things like that. So uh, if you like that kind of stuff on the command line, I, I definitely recommend checking this out. I use Jupyter to do some personal finance data munging that um, got cumbersome for me on Google Sheets, for example. That's very cool. And it looks like it's a, a nice looking interface for the terminal, which is great. Yeah. So I'll probably hack on this. <laughs> um, cool. All right. So the next one is from it's nice that.com. Um, this is the first house to be 3d printed from raw earth. Yeah. So I think yeah. this may be the solution to the housing crisis in the U S right now. And in many other countries, I'm saying that a little bit uh, facetiously, but this is a 3d printed house. Apparently they use multiple printers um, over the span of 200 hours using local soil to build the layers of this house out that has like a bedroom, a kitchen, a bathroom. Obviously there's other parts that are not 3D printed to, to finally fabricate the whole thing. But right. the concept is really interesting that they can mass produce something like this because um, 200 hours is not a long time. Now, I don't know if that really uh, takes into account pre and post building it. So I don't know if that's really just the printing part of it and assembling it, but I mean, you're you're sort of IKEA IKEAizing, if that's a word, um, right? Home development, because imagine you get like all this stuff and you get a set of instructions like go build your home. Um, so I think in areas that uh, lack the ability to get like transport materials over or ha mm -hmm. have the expertise to build things like this, if you're using raw earth to build this and you can follow a simple set of instructions to do it, um, that's really interesting. And yeah, I like the thing you highlighted. The result is. Yeah, Tecla is the name of the the, te the company. They're trying to, um, you know, technology and clay. It's a combination of the two words, Tecla. Mm -hmm. um, it's an almost zero emission and low carbon earth process now. Some interesting facts. So it's made from 350 individual 12 millimeter layers, um, 60 cubic, which ends up being 60 cubic meters of, of natural materials. Um, they're saying the average consumption, I guess, of the whole process is less than six kilowatts. Um, I don't oh, wow. know. I don't know how to compare that to a, a typical, you know, American colonial home, whatever, or townhouse, uh, you know, what, the, how much energy it takes to build that. So that's only eight full days, right? So right. Let's, say it's, let's say they're only working during the day. It's so like 16, 16 work days. That's, that's not bad at all. No. And it seems like you've got that insulating air sections to probably make it, you know, so that it doesn't get too hot or too cold. Yeah. Um, so that's a big deal too. You know, you've got kind of insulation built into the walls or at least spacing built into the walls uh, for that. That's really neat. Imagine like, you know, maybe in the future, you'll be able to like basically click 
and order like, you know, can basically like customize the kind of house you want the way you order laptops or, or machines today. You know, and it's, then it's really not, the cost is probably not anywhere near as much as it would be to build a home and you could build a home pretty much anywhere you need to, you know, yeah. very cool. That's a neat one. All right. Um, all right. Let's see. Zoom. <laughs> Zoom is continually finding ways to make things odd. <laughs> yeah. um, so we all use Zoom because you, you have a kid, if you have businesses, if you work with anybody, you're going to use Zoom. They're trying to figure ways to simulate people being in the same room together besides being in a tile view like the Brady Bunch. Everyone looks to the side and hopes the other person is the one they're looking for right. for the Brady Bunch scene. Um, so this is creepy to me. Um, it launches an immersive view to unify participants in the same virtual room. I don't want this, personally. <laughs> I, uh, it's I mean, cool, I, I guess. The idea and the fact yeah. that it's a little more natural than having to look through a grid or a, or a sequence of, of people and watching them or as people talk, it switches and having to like keep track of what, what. So I like the idea of seeing everything at once, but boy, this is not a world I want to live in. Um, it's scary. Yeah. And you know, it just makes me want to find a log cabin in the mountains and go <laughs> get in your bunker. Now. Yeah. I think that it makes me think that I need a mallet so I can play whack-a-mole because you really want to go ding, 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 ding yes. to everybody. Yes. They have to come up with games around this because it would just make it a lot of fun. Anyway, they are trying to find ways to make it more interactive and immersive. Um, hopefully, everyone gets vaccinated enough. We can all go back to work and actually physically see each other. I, I've had the same experience. Um, I listen to different podcasts. And so a couple of the podcasts experiment with live people connecting. So they have like for comedy, they get people clapping. And it's always this weird delay. And people are talking too much and they have to keep telling them to mute themselves. And they're like, oh, God, it's like a giant meeting. I can't take this. I see entertainment factor here, like where you, you see little thought bubbles appear and, you know, whatever yeah. is typing or speaking, it shows up as text in a thought bubble above their head. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. So this is VentureBeat.com uh, to give attribution here. Uh, and this is by Paul Sars. Um, and so, yeah, interesting to see where this is headed. Um, it's launched. So I guess we could try it out for fun. Um, but uh, that's where it's going. So. Anyway, what happens if you like, let's say I, I don't turn, I guess if you don't turn the camera on, you're shamed into like, you know, either shows it just, I don't know, it'd be interesting. Like if half the group just turns their camera off, I would just like to see a dumb smiley face you sketch out like, you know, <laughs> here's goofy Ken, you know, oh man, too funny. All right. Here's a realistic thing. That's kind of cool. So, all right. So we're both Mac users, um, but I, I have a surface book that I bought a while back. Um, that's being shipped back to me today because uh, it kept ejecting the clipboard over and over again. Uh, but anyway, so Windows has really been focusing on having uh, good Linux support over the past two or three years. If you haven't touched a Windows machine in about half a decade and, and you have one laying around, you might want to load Windows 10 and load Windows subsystem for Linux. It's something you can add for free to any uh, Windows environment as long as you have Windows 10 uh, in a certain version, which is basically any of the current versions. And what you get is you have the ability to install a whole bunch of different distros. And in fact, the uh, Microsoft kernel uh, extensions are part of that installation. So when you install, you're getting a Windows native kernel, which lets it interact directly with uh, Linux. So it's, it's really tight integration with the operating system. Mm -hmm. In some cases, you can even do like GPU programming uh, on certain Linux distributions using uh, you know, like uh, OpenCL and CUDA and all those things. Uh, directly against it for like, you know, data science and things like that, which is pretty cool. 
Um, but one of the problems with it is that you have to really hack around to get Linux GUI applications going. Uh, so for example, I would install before this uh, feature that we're talking about, I would install like an X Windows emulator, like X410, which is a like a $9 X Windows server um, or client, I guess is the right term. I, they always get backwards in that. Uh, so you can run your Windows server and then you could manually configure your CLI, manually configure your terminal operating environment to point to that running X terminal. So you could run GUI Linux applications. Now in the latest developer build of Windows, um, they've launched something called WSLG. And so WSLG lets you natively without any extra configuration. Uh, oh, I didn't want to have that happen. Uh, without any kind of uh, configuration, uh, you automatically have the ability to, let me see if I can get this larger here. Of course, it's never going to be big enough. There we go. Uh, to, to run any Linux GUI application. So you can apt install your favorite GUI tool and it automatically will just launch. The X Windows environment is automatically configured for you. And Windows is hosting in a very lightweight Docker image. Uh, and it's all set up for you. So... You know, if you have some sort of like visualization tools or Linux games, who runs a Linux game? Um, unless you're on native Linux and running Steam. Yeah, I thought um, hell would have froze over by the time something like this would have happened. And I, so I, I just can't believe wh where, the, where the two are going. And, you know, how many years do you, do you think there'll be, there'll be a time where Windows becomes more and more like Linux and eventually it's Linux and Windows will run embedded in Linux? That would be hilarious. Now look at this. So this is running Test Cafe, right? Automating Microsoft Edge with a tool from Linux, right? So it's it's running the Edge browser to test different uh, user front ends, but you're using Linux tools for it. And anybody who hasn't done any of this before, if you have Visual uh, Studio um, Code, Visual Studio Code, you can install the WSL plugin for Visual Studio Code, and in your Linux instance, you can clone your Git repo. And you can open up the Git Linux repo image in Visual Studio Code natively. And you're working in all, you have a Linux shell, you have Linux tools, and you just have a Windows environment. So that's been around for a year or two. And that's been great. But now you've got this like ability to do all sorts of cool stuff. They've even included an audio server. So I'm not playing the sound from this, but here's this guy. He, man, after my own heart, he's playing his guitar. Um, <laughs> he's running Linux Audacity to record audio wave files natively in... Uh, Linux, wow. you know, and there's like visualization tools. So here's an example of a, like, I think it's 120 frames per second animation, uh, you know, to, to, to like visualize and, and analyze, uh, you know, terrain. All this stuff is Linux tooling. Yeah. I mean, right. It's going to be great for developers. Huge. Yeah. It's fantastic. And developers who do a lot of windows development yeah. who know Linux love WSL. Um, it's just a fantastic tool. So if you don't have a Mac or your company says no Mac, this is a great alternative if you don't want to go all in on running a Linux physical installation because that could be hell on earth with driver issues and all sorts of stuff. So they literally give you Wayland, which is a new X Windows uh, like um, user interface, uh, X server. They use the Pulse audio server so you can watch YouTube videos from Firefox on Linux, no problem. Uh, and I did this before manually. You can do it, but it takes a long time. And then when you're done with it, if you install a new distro, you have to start all over again. This is just going to be straightforward with it. Uh, and they're using this thing called CBL Mariner, which is their lightweight distribution that they use for their cloud infrastructure and for edge products. So that's what they're using to install the GUI app framework inside of WSL. And they make it completely invisible to you. You don't have to think about it. 
Really, really cool stuff. Like I said, if you're a Windows person, because you have to be at work and you can get them to let you use uh, WSL, do it. You'll 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 appreciate it. Because also things like line endings and Git, you know, stuff like that just melts away because you're using Linux and in, in the heart of it. Linux or Lindos? Hmm. <laughs> Remember, there was a Lindos years ago. It was Linux Windows. You're right. Right. <laughs> so we can't use Lindos. We use Winix. I like Winix better. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's talk about something else uh, interesting. So I got this all. I got all my devices patched to try this out. Apple just had 14.5 released on iOS, iPad OS, and Watch OS. Uh, had 7.4 of that for whatever reason they're still in different version numbers and the coolest thing they just did was if you're wearing a mask out in public and you have an iphone and you liked doing the screen unlock you couldn't use it because your face is covered up if you have an apple watch and you're unlocked in your apple watch with this thing you just have to turn on a certain option uh and automatically it will it will look and try to unlock with your face and then immediately knows your mask is on and make sure your watch is unlocked and unlock your phone so as long as you have yeah, as long as you have your phone on you and your phone's unlocked and you go like this, it unlocks it. And I just tried it out and it works. I'm like, it's a year late, man. <laughs> it would have been great. Hundred dollars on another device so you can unlock your phone. I happen to be the, the the doofus that has these devices already, so I could upgrade them all. But if you're on an Android device and you don't have an Apple Watch, you're out of luck. Uh, well, but yeah, one interesting thing in this article they talk about is uh, Apple app tracking transparency, mm -hmm. which is basically. Um, more more confirmations when an app tries to do something uh, to make sure that they're you know that the person that is using the phone can allow them to do it like displaying targeted advertisements in your app based on user data collected from apps and websites owned by other companies mm -hmm. sharing device location data etc um, so sounds like they're you know they've been it's interesting because on the Mac OS right they've been getting more and more um, granular about making sure that when a program is doing something to the file system or the network or whatever, that the first time you can say, hey, either allow this going forward or don't allow it and you know, down to each folder or file. And they're making the same sort of security framework and constraints on mobile as well. So I find that interesting. And the, my paranoid future self thinks of stuff in the future where you know someday your app will ask you, allow app to send your DNA, read your DNA or alter <laughs> your DNA and tinfoil hats won't help. Put your put your phone to your ear and take a blood sample. Ding! Hey, um, it does say here uh, that the feature is now live and all apps submitted and released in the App Store will need to follow the new rule. Yeah. So if you're an iOS developer and you didn't hear about this, jump on and check it out. This is a um, just a, a blog entry from iDownloadBlog. I just grabbed a random one here. But I'm sure you can find a whole bunch of different places where this is all listed and certainly from the SDK itself. So be aware that there's there's stuff you have to support going forward to support uh, newer versions of the apps in the App Store to submit them, for example. There's other things. So, for example, 5G in a dual SIM mode, iPhone 12. Um, even with a digital SIM, you can you can now have uh, the ability to do a 5G access. Um, you know, you've got uh, the mask wearing unlock, new wireless game controllers for iOS, but I guess they're adding some additional ones like uh, dual sense controller for PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X controllers. If you have one laying around, you can game with that. So cool stuff there from a developer perspective. It's maybe okay, but... Uh, what have you. And the other thing that's really wild, if you haven't checked this out yet, um, there's a bunch of new voices for Siri. And so if you want to have a less mechanical voice, they have a lot of them. And they've got like, you know, half a gig worth of audio files to download when you download them. So they're going to sound a lot more realistic than the default Siri. 
Uh, and I've already tried some of those on. It's pretty good. So anyway, the big the big things out of this, like you said, are the privacy options being more granular and letting you know a lot more. And the face unlock is very cool. But you should be paying attention to this if you're an iOS developer, of course. So that just happened today. They, they just released all these things today or maybe yesterday. Um, and, you know, 9to5Mac has a really good uh, overview of what happened last week. Last week at this time, they were doing the Spring Loaded event. Um, and so the spring loaded event was where they announced some pretty major stuff. Uh, so first of all, the biggest thing is, and I probably have to scroll to find this thing. Um, no, I won't, I won't even bother scrolling. I'll just talk about it, uh, is that they've released, um, they're using the M one chip going forward for the iPad. Now the iPad has been using the a series chips, a whatever through a 15, a 16, whatever it is. Um, and so, now we're looking at a convergence of ARM chips between the, um, you know, Max ARM chip of the M1 chip, which is super fast. And now the uh, Apple uh, handheld devices are looking and moving into the M1. In addition, there's also the iMac is now an M1 iMac instead. And they showed in the, in the, in the release, they showed a video of like the motherboard sizes for an existing iMac and they had to have large heat sinks and things like that because the Intel architecture. And they said, here's the new iMac and it has this little tiny panel for the M1 system on a chip and a few things and two little fans. So they have more room to put in like subwoofers and things like that. And even was a lot thinner. So you can see now this is all converging and they're really taking advantage of the M1 architecture, even for iPads. What do you think about that? I think that it means one, hopefully more and more apps between all these platforms, Mac, iPhone, or iOS, and, and, and iPad will be like a seamless experience because you'll be able to kind of switch between any one of them and just continue working. So I think that's interesting. Yep. The amount of power, I can imagine, is going to be ridiculous for an iPad to have an M1 and the things it's going to be able to do. So are they going to take advantage of that? When yeah, what are they going to turn off, right? AR yeah. and AIML and video gaming. So like there's probably a ton of potential um, – use cases in any one of those uh, domains. I wonder what the iPad is going to, the new one costs. I mean, it's, it's probably very expensive. Oh, they had pricing. The older ones have come down in price a lot now that they've announced this. The iPad Pro, I believe it's like $899 and $1099 or something. I don't know. I don't have the actual price in front of me, but they weren't significantly different. But you can get the very high-end 12.9-inch uh, iMac, I'm sorry, um, MacBook yeah. Pro, um, you will get 16 gigs of RAM, someone found out. So you have basically laptop level everything. It's just you're running iOS, which I can't wait till iOS dies a horrible death and we go on to actually having everything on OS 10 or one of them. One of them needs to die, but I need a terminal and I need an escape key on a keyboard, which we've gotten that far. Um. <laughs> so I, probably, I mean, if I, if, if I were looking at something and I didn't care about whether, like I didn't have to have a tablet, I would probably spend that money on an M1 MacBook Air yeah. Or a pro. Yeah. I mean, the touchscreen's nice. The, the one thing I do miss um, when I go to a Mac is I miss the touchscreen because it is kind of nice to be able to do that. That's the only thing I really miss yeah. from a from a touch object. You know, I, I need to be able to write notes sometimes and I like writing them on a drawing tablet. But uh, that's the only major feature I could not necessarily live without. You know, my daughter gets frustrated with anything that is not a touchscreen. She expects everything to be a touchscreen. She touches my laptop all the time and to explain, like, it's not a touchscreen over and over. It's just instinctive. Like, that's the, the UI interaction she's used to with any piece of glass. So, 
Um, it's just yep. hilarious watching her touch things that are not touch screens and then get frustrated that they're not. My own wife, we, we, uh, we said, like I said, I had a problem with my Surface Book. The the you for people who don't have a Surface Book, you can eject the clipboard part, which is the whole computer, from the keyboard base, and you can use it like a tablet. And it's a decent tablet for that, but battery life is horrific. But eventually, after owning this for like three or four years, it started disconnecting on me. Right, so constantly it would just eject, eject, eject. So I sent it in, and of course I was out of warranty. So that was six hundred bucks, which is a lot. But they give you a complete replacement. So. Anyway, the point of this is I didn't have that for my wife to use and she was using uh, another device and she's touching the screen and I'm like, it's not a touch screen. So when I got her a, ma a, a machine to replace hers, I got the cheap uh, Surface Laptop Go mm -hmm. and it's a little tiny thing. It's perfect for writers. She's a writer and she opens it up and it's got a touch screen. I just wish Apple would put a touch screen in these things. It's not a lot, but they're just not going to do that because they own the tablet, you know? I can't see them doing that right now. It'd be great to see these converge completely at some point where, you know, they could just be an aspect of OS 10 is that it could, it could be a tablet platform, you know, or go OS, go, go iOS, but I really need keyboard and curses support and stuff like that. So that's just me jumping up and down as a developer. And I'm not, I'm not the test case for an iPad. We have an iPad at home that, you know, my daughter and wife use every once in a while, mainly my daughter. I used it for a while and I pretty much always go for my laptop. It's just, yeah. Part of it is just it's all customized and to me and no one else uses it. So I don't have to worry about cruft and crap showing yeah. up on there. But right. I just you can do a lot. You just get more real estate, have more things open, switch back and forth easier. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not I'm not a big fan of the tablet experience, to be totally honest. Yeah, it's very single threaded. Even if you can put things next to each other, it's very artificial and tapping between them. You're still moving focus and switching and you might not be on the right one at the right time. Um, it doesn't feel fluid for someone who has to get a lot of work done, um, but it's great for entertainment and cons consumption. Still, I still think that holds. So that's why I wouldn't look at a pro and say, yep, I need the pro with the stylus and the keyboard, because if you ever try to make that your daily runner, unless you're a reporter in the field, yeah. you know, and that's your job is just to write stuff down and take pictures. So you know, and, do you use the iPad at all um, for like music or laying tracks or doing anything? I tried. I, I, so some of the things I do, I really, it requires a Windows machine or a Mac um, just because of the horsepower, you know, the garage being on, it's okay. But uh, you know, you're, you're then kind of stuck in this little dongle world for everything. It's not, not a great experience for me, but I know a lot of musicians like playing backing tracks on an iPad, for example, okay. you know, they put their whole thing together, they put it on garage band, then you just play it and they play over it. So it just doesn't speak to me as much as having an actual machine with plugins and a really good uh, DAW, uh, you know, editor gotcha. does. That's just me. Uh, so here's the thing. Like, um, let's talk about what this really means. What this really means is the ARM platform is really becoming, it's going everywhere, right? If you think of like Amazon with their Graviton processors, right? Graviton 2. Um, technically speaking, they're like the number one cloud chip right now. You know, a manufacturer, they're manufacturing their own ARM chips. Microsoft with the SQ chips for the, for the Surface Book 10, uh, and things like that, they were doing ARM and they're licensing ARM v6 or v7, whatever the version is. Um, this is an ARM platform, the, the M1. Uh, and before that, so was the A, uh, you know, whatever uh, chips from Apple. So ARM has been really like doing licensing deals with all these companies for years and years and years. But now a lot of companies are going down the ARM route. The power consumption isn't as much. The heat dissipation isn't a big deal compared to like a regular Intel type chipset. 
um, and it's really been taking over. Meanwhile, NVIDIA made a move back in October to buy ARM, which is an interesting move because they have GPU chips that a lot of people use. Uh, and they feel like, well, if we have ARM, then we could do the whole chipset with an ARM core uh, for our own stuff, and we wouldn't have to license ARM to do our chipsets. Um, and so it's an interesting move. Um, there's, you know, there's a bunch of pro and con arguments on either side of the spectrum. It has not been approved yet that I know of, because um, I looked and I was, didn't see an actual approval. The, the big issue is it's a British-owned company uh, right now. And NVIDIA is a U.S. company in Silicon Valley. And so Britain is really looking at it and saying, do we really want this to happen? Do we want to approve uh, this takeover of arms? So there's various uh, opinions on this. If you look, I'll, I'll post the Forbes uh, you know, uh, article on it. Um, this is by Beth Kindig uh, talking about why it should be approved. Um, you know, they're, they're taking a look and seeing you know, uh, that there's a lot of companies doing arm. Uh, so you'll get some some perspective from them from a business perspective there, which we won't go through now. Uh, you then have like, uh, you know, an analysis from the next platform talking about why NVIDIA needs to buy the ARM architecture. One of the things that they mentioned in here is that uh, NVIDIA uh, has said that they will keep the licensing deals the way they are. I really hope that's the case because it's been very open. Uh, and in fact, they might want to accelerate it a little bit. So just so you know, ARM V9 is the most current architecture that they have. And I don't believe that's licensed by anybody yet. And I think that's like the newest platform that they're coming up with. So the hope is that even if NVIDIA buys ARM, they're still going to keep the licensing deals with these other companies like Microsoft and Apple and, you know, um, you know AWS and so on. Um, you know, and basically, you know, the owner, the, the CEO of the company uh, at NVIDIA said, NVIDIA can't create every process for every situation and no uh, single company can. Uh, so the hope is that they're going to keep the licensing arm as is. Licensing arm. <laughs> so in the UK, though, there we go. So Reuters had reported back on April 19th, not that long ago, they invoked national security to investigate NVIDIA's arm deal because they feel this is like a national security threat to have it go away. Yeah, think about it. A lot of systems are using ARM, probably missile systems, probably jets. Newer ones are probably using some sort of ARM technology. So they they likely see this as something that they are concerned about not giving up as like a national treasure, you know, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, my w one of my biggest concerns is is Nvidia going to remain committed to ARM's open licensing model? Which, yep. You know, for example, in the Linux world, famously, the the interaction between Linus Torvalds and and uh, NVIDIA, NVIDIA has not really been open with their um, graphics cards, right, and drivers. So it's been a challenge to get them implemented on Linux. So the support really sucks when it comes to NVIDIA for Linux. And will that continue when they, if this goes through and how is the open source community going to react to that? Because the whole world is dependent on ARM. Um, yeah, not it really is. For mobile, but for uh, entertainment devices, for vehicles, automotive industry, robots, uh, there's, it, there's a lot being done there. They're also getting much, much more into edge computing, AI and ML, which is one of the reasons NVIDIA is so hot about trying to get them is NVIDIA is becoming a leader in AI and edge with their GPUs and, and mining Bitcoin and all this stuff in AI. So it's a natural progression of the two companies to want to come together, but it's an interesting position because everybody depends on ARM. And exactly. a lot of companies like Microsoft and Google and a lot of countries are, are going to fight tooth and nail to try to prevent this from happening because 
in the long run, I can't, I, in the long run, I can't, I, I don't, my personal opinion is that, and yes, this is my personal opinion, that I don't think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And it certainly raises a lot of open questions, right? It'll, it, it's too much power mm-hmm. with one company that can obviously is going to care about their bottom line and their strategy and their market share. So what does that, what does that mean when it comes to uh, listening to other vendors, other, other, other companies that depend on arm and the feature requests they have, like, how is that all going to get determined and prioritized? And, and, and what is a roadmap for arm look like if they go under NVIDIA or is NVIDIA going to let it be its own thing? I can't really see that happening. So um, I'm concerned. I think this is one I'm, you know, I'm going to be closely watching. You know, it's, it's, it's not exactly similar, but let's take a thought experiment and say a decade ago, if, you know, uh, Intel started grabbing all the GPU companies up completely, right? And they have some technology and, you know, uh, but if they got NVIDIA, for example, this is bigger than that because Intel didn't necessarily license the the concepts of the 686 or whatever to somebody else. They, you know, uh, AMD did a clean room implementation of it, so to speak, and they've got their processors. Um, or if they bought that, you know, but this is like all these companies are building chips based on the ARM designs, uh, the ARM licenses, I should say, for their for their chipsets. Yeah. So this has the effect of, of of basically potentially hamstringing tons and tons of different companies across many different industries. So I can see your concern about that and uh, probably is a good reason to to consider keeping these two companies apart, even though from a synergies perspective, the companies are drooling to get together for you know, making themselves bigger, so to speak. So it'll be an interesting battle. They're paying the $40 billion. So NVIDIA wants to pay $40 billion for ARM. ARM is revenue, top line is $2 billion and their bottom line is only 50 million. So, Hmm. and that's because ARM hasn't tried to align with one side or become very profit heavy by aligning with some large companies. Like they've been neutral for a long time for the most part. And one of these, I, I looked at the articles he posted, and one of them basically meant like they can't stay neutral. You know, they can't they can't be Switzerland forever. Like it's at some point they're going to have to align or or side with somebody. And it sounds like you know this is what Nvidia is trying to do. You know, it's probably one of those things where at some point there won't be an open license for the ARM uh, technology, and they'll have to get people will have to get off of the ARM rail, or you know somehow make a deal with another thing. There is no other thing out there besides Intel. You know, so this could be pain down the road. You know, this could be really interesting pain down the road if this merges and they decide to go for the just purely for profit. Right. So, but at, at any rate, right now you can get computers that beat the heck out of every other computer, like the M1 based at Apple, uh, and it screams, you know. So interesting times, definitely. Okay. Well, that's, I don't think we have anything else, do we? I think that's everything for the week. All right. So uh, listen, everybody, uh, again, if you have not registered for Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise, it's phillyete.com or phillyemergingtech.com. It'll take you to these pages. 89 bucks a seat. Get in while you can. Uh, It starts next Tuesday morning. I'm sure you can register over the weekend and still be in. Um, But don't wait if you if you uh, don't have to, because there's some fantastic speakers and you'll meet a lot of people, especially if you're in the Philly area. It's great to network with your peers and see what other people are doing You'll make some friendships that will last a lifetime. Um, so again, phillyemergingtech.com. Uh, I should also mention, uh, just from a charity perspective, we are hiring. Uh, 
yeah, we're looking for people. Uh, so, Sujan, you, you've got this much in your head than I do. So talk about what we're looking for right now for people. So we're looking for senior software engineers that um, have significant experience with either Java, Python, or Node.js, and AWS. Uh, if you love programming, if you're really strong in a language and you're analytical, you know, um, you like breaking down problems, working on technology, working with clients on technology, um, we're looking for people just like you. So um, Java, Python, or Node, again, um, having AWS experience um, is definitely a significant bonus. Having front-end skills like React, Angular, or Vue, which are almost a stack unto themselves, is really important. We do a lot of work where we're building uh, products or applications for our clients, so it's not just back-end systems or integrations, it's full-fledged applications end-to-end. -end. So if you're interested in that kind of work and being involved at different phases of the project from inception to completion, um, and like mentoring, training, being tech leaders within a client's organization, um, definitely reach out to us. We'd love to chat with you. We're also looking for folks with senior iOS, uh, Swift, or Objective-C, although most of our work is Swift these days, um, experience. And uh, a recent job description we added, or opening, I should say, is uh, senior data engineer. So we're looking for folks that have a lot of experience with Python, um, building uh, ELT or ETL pipelines, being able to move data from one spot to another in the cloud, like Amazon or Google or Azure. Most of our work is Amazon. So if you have experience with transforming data, getting it from one place to another, um, for example, the target being a data warehouse, so analytics can run on that. And you have experience, not just writing SQL or putting scripts together, but standing up those systems end to end, um, monitoring them, debugging them, finding data quality issues, and being able to like take a business requirement from a marketing part of the business and say, okay, we can get you the data, transform it, and put it into a format that you can then query it to get the answers you need. And you enjoy doing that kind of stuff and getting your hands dirty and working with a lot of changing requirements with business stakeholders. Um, we have a lot of great opportunities. Absolutely. And again, that's at chariotsolutions.com slash careers if you want to jump right to it. But you go to about and it's right there on the page uh, to join our team. Uh, great. And so again, programming note, next week we'll be at Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise. We will be doing a 10 to 11 a.m. show three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Like and subscribe this video you're watching on YouTube and you will be notified when they start. And that's it. So for the week, I will see you later. It's Ken Rimple. To John Kapadia. Have a great week. Take care.